Hey, hey, y'all. What's up? Good morning. Hope you're doing well. Also, a huge shout out to our um, online campus joining us this morning. Welcome all y'all to the Story Church. If we haven't yet met yet, my name is Dylan Braddock, and I serve as a student ministry coordinator, which basically means I get to hang out with our kids and students and families all the time, which I love. It's my joy. I love doing it. Uh, but a little announcement about me. Um, this upcoming year, I'm going to be officially ordained as a pastor of the Story Church, which, yeah, super, super exciting. We're going to have like a big ordination ceremony. Me and Pastor Kale are actually going to be ordained together, which is going to be really cool. So we'll invite all y'all to that when we get the details. But it's exciting times here at the Story Church. I mean, good times are rolling. Um, if you're new to the story, we just want to give you an extra special welcome Maybe your new wish, maybe you've been coming for three, four, five, six weeks, but you haven't made this your official church home yet. We just want to welcome you. We want you to know there's a place here for you and that we are a community that takes doubt and the big questions seriously because we believe Jesus can handle them. And we're going to get to that in today's story. But we are about halfway through our first ever 22-week series here at The Story called Physician and the Facts. And so far, it's been going pretty well because no one has complained about it being too long. So I'll take that as a thumbs up. Um, but we're about halfway through the Gospel of Luke and halfway through the series. So as we've established so far, Luke was a doctor and he approached this book like an investigator. He interviewed all the sources, talked to everyone that was there, and he was trying to get the details correct. And the question that Luke is trying to address and this portion of his gospel is, who is Jesus? This is the main question that Luke is trying to address. And I would argue it's the most important question that any of us will ever ask in our entire lives. Who is Jesus? Because as you've heard us say before, Jesus is everything or he is nothing. He is either the king, the Lord of your life, or he is the biggest fraud who ever existed. So, who is Jesus? This is a question that we all wrestle with, but I think we wrestle with it the most when God surprises us or when God doesn't live up to our expectations that we have for him. And you might think, I don't have expectations for God, but I promise you do. All of us have expectations for everything and for everyone. And as we go throughout life, our experiences with God, with the church, and with Christians influence what we expect from God. Like we expect Christians to be good people. We expect the church to be welcoming. We expect God to show up when we need him. But what happens when those things don't happen? What happens when Christians aren't good or the church isn't welcoming? Or what even happens when God doesn't show up and you wonder where the heck he is? This morning, the question we want to address is what do we do when our expectations for God are not met. And in order to examine this question, we are going to look at a fascinating conversation between John the Baptist and Jesus in Luke chapter 7. I hope you grabbed your study guides on your way in. If you did, go ahead and get them out. I'm going to give you the first answer. So I'm already giving you the answers. A great Sunday morning. Uh, today, we are going to analyze this passage in three categories. The first is John's question. The second is Jesus's response. And the third and final is Jesus's challenge. We'll look at each part individually to see the entire story. 
But before we can dive into John's question, we first have to know who John is. And what I want to focus on this morning is John the Baptist's special relationship with Jesus. Because John the Baptist and Jesus were very close. They were family. They were cousins. And it seems like they grew up most of their life together. And when I say that John the Baptist and Jesus were cousins, I don't mean that weird cousin you see only five years at like a family reunion in Arkansas or like cousin Eddie from Christmas vacation. I'm not talking about the weird cousin. I'm talking about the type of cousins that feel like brother or sister. The type of cousins that you grow up with and you do life with and they feel like an extension of your family. Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Elizabeth, the mother of John, spent months together during their pregnancies. So it's safe to assume that once the babies were born, they spent a lot of time together. And Jesus and John even ended up going into the same business, the God business, right? John was a very famous teacher in his time. Mark chapter 1 says that the whole Judean countryside and all of Jerusalem came out to hear John the Baptist preach. John was a great preacher. He was a disruptor in the realm of Judaism, but John's ministry always had an expiration date. John knew that someday he would have to give up the mic and give it to someone greater, that greater person being his little cousin, Jesus. In the baptism, the moment where John the Baptist baptizes Jesus is that moment when the ministry kind of passes off when John passes off the baton and Jesus takes over. And this is where most of us forget about John the Baptist. We kind of think his story ends here when Jesus is baptized, but we actually see Luke, or we see John pop up again in the Gospel of Luke, and that's the story we're going to be covering today. But we got to fast forward a little bit after the baptism, because after the baptism, John got into a little trouble. So John, if you've read any of his sermons, he's very like fire and brimstone, kind of Southern Baptist feeling. He was calling the Pharisees brood of vipers, very intense guy. And and calling the Pharisees out was easy. Like the crowd probably cheered him on as he called the Pharisees out. But once he started calling out the Roman rulers, he kind of got into trouble. There was no freedom of speech in ancient Rome. So when he called out Herod for sleeping with his brother's sister, John was thrown into prison. And not just any old prison, but John was thrown into death row. He was essentially waiting in prison for the day when Herod would come in and say, off with his head. And I can't imagine how grueling a first century AD uh, prison would be, but think about the mental torture as well of sitting there day by day, never being sure of which one will be your last. And in this time, While John was in prison, his disciples would come to him and tell him all the incredible things that Jesus was doing on the outside. I imagine when John heard these stories, he was thrilled, but he was probably heartbroken as well. Because, you know, he had paved the way for Jesus. He had set everything up, and now he was missing the harvest. John had prepared his whole life for this moment, and while Jesus was healing the sick and bringing the dead back to life, John was in chains. And if I was John, I mean, if I was in John's shoes, I think I would be kind of upset. I mean, I hate to admit it, but if I was John, I'd be like, come on, Jesus, you're healing Roman soldiers. Why don't you save your favorite cousin from prison? 
So in John's last few days of life, he has the opportunity to ask Jesus a question. So he sends his disciples, and here is the question that John asked Jesus at the very end. If you have your Bibles, open them to Luke chapter 7, and we're going to pick up in verse 18. So John's disciples told him about all of these things. And by that, he means all the miracles that Jesus is doing. So calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? So John essentially asking Jesus, are you the Messiah who will save us? Or should we be looking for someone else? That's a really interesting question, right? Because John knew Jesus was the Messiah. He walked with him. He talked with him. He even baptized him. Yet here, as his life was coming to an end, he was doubting. So what can we learn from John's doubt in his question? The first thing that I learn is that doubt is not a death sentence. John the Baptist was human, just like me and just like you, and I believe he had expectations for the type of Messiah Jesus would be. All of Judaism had slightly different uh, opinions on what the Messiah would look like, but most people assumed the Messiah would be like King David that he would come with a sword, defeating the Romans and conquering Jerusalem. So if you had this view of the Messiah in your head and then Jesus comes and you're stuck in chains in a Roman prison, you can imagine how difficult that would be. He thought Jesus would save him, but now he's stuck in chains. And if you look at other Old Testament prophets, many other prophets had similar dark night of the soul experiences. Like the prophet Elijah, after he saw fire come down from heaven and burn up the prophets of Baal, he got so depressed that he asked God to take his own life. Or Jeremiah, the prophet that foretold the destruction of Jerusalem, he wanted to give up being a prophet because he was tired of being mocked. Even modern day prophets wrestle with doubt. I read this quote from the great English uh, preacher, Charles Spurgeon, who was known as the Prince of Preachers, and he had this to say about his own doubt. Some of us who have preached the word for years and have been the means of working faith in others and establishing them in knowledge of the fundamental doctrines of the Bible have nevertheless been the subjects of the most fearful and violent doubts as to the truth of the very gospel that we have preached. What this says to me is no matter who you are, how close you are to God, you have the potential to face violent and fearful doubts in your own life. But these doubts do not mean your faith is dead. If anything, I believe these doubts can actually spur us on to greater intimacy with God. Because by asking these questions, We can have communion with our Father, and then we can have the answers that other people are asking. So when you talk to your non-religious friends, if you've been through doubts, you can be like, yeah, I doubted that too at one point, but this is what God showed me. Yeah, I've had that question too, but here's how God answered my prayers. 
It's actually through working through our doubts that we're better equipped to witness to others. The people who may be in the most trouble are the ones who never doubted. Not because they had great faith, but because they were too indifferent or too busy or too unwilling to ask the hard questions. John's doubt was not a death sentence. If anything, it shows us how to constructively deal with our doubts today. And that's the second thing we learn in this passage, and that is we are called to take our doubts to God. To take our doubts to God. So let me ask you a question. Where do you go when you have a question? I always go to the internet. <laughs> like first call, no matter what, I go to the internet. I usually go to YouTube. Like we were installing a dishwasher this weekend and I was watching YouTube videos for like an hour and a half trying to figure out how to get all the connectors together. Or every time me and my wife decide to go on a vacation, I have to watch like 30 different YouTube videos on every single resort in Playa de Carmen so I know which one is the best. And the internet can be a useful tool when it comes to simple problems like installing a dishwasher or picking out which resort to go to in Mexico. But the internet is a dangerous place when you take your bigger problems, the bigger questions, the life or death ones. And one of my biggest concerns with students and really young people today is that whenever they have really deep, potentially life or death type questions, instead of taking them to their parents or instead of taking them to their church leaders, they're taking them to the internet. And they end up on some YouTube account that says the multiverse disproves God's existence and they begin to spiral. If we go to chat boards and search for answers about our identity and purpose and meaning, we're not gonna find the truth. All we're gonna find is lies masquerading as truth. So when we have questions, we have to go to the source. So parents in the room, I encourage you to keep open lines of communication with your students. When they have questions, don't get mad at them, but encourage them. Be vulnerable, share your own doubts, share your own questions with their kids, with your kids, so they know it's a safe space and they can go to you when they're searching for answers and not go to the internet. So John goes to the correct source. He goes to Jesus and he is rewarded with an answer. So let's read Jesus' answer in Luke chapter 7, verse 21. And it's a classic Jesus answer. It's a little unconventional. But Jesus says, at that very time, uh, or the passage says, at that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is being proclaimed to the poor. So how does Jesus respond? Jesus responds with comfort. Do you notice his tone? He doesn't take offense to John's doubt. He doesn't scold him or say, come on, John, out of anyone, you should know the answer to this question. Jesus doesn't say any of that. He comforts John and he tells John what John actually already knows. And this response might feel like he's not answering the question, but I promise he is. Because you have to remember John's upbringing, right? 
John grew up Jewish. His dad, Zechariah, was a priest in the temple. And being a good um, Jewish leader, John had memorized whole portions of the Old Testament. He had probably memorized like the entire law and a lot of the prophets, especially the ones talking about Jesus. So when Jesus started saying all these things that he'd been doing, this started checking off the boxes in John's brain. He's like, yeah, the prophets did say the Messiah would heal the blind, check. The prophets did say the blind would receive sight, check. The prophets did say the lame would walk, check. And as Jesus is walking through all these miracles, he's confirming everything that John already knows to be true. Jesus is walking with John. He's comforting him and say, John, you've been right all along. I am the Messiah. And I'm sure John was thrilled to hear this. He was like, yeah, I was never doubting. I knew this the whole time. Don't worry, you guys. I, I knew but as Jesus was going through the list of miracles being performed, Jesus did stop before getting through the entire prophecy. He didn't name every miracle talked about in Isaiah chapter 61. Jesus' words were intentional, and he left something out on purpose. So let's read Isaiah 61.1 and see what Jesus leaves out. Jesus says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. Okay, pause. That's exactly where Jesus ends his um, answer. But Psalm 61 goes on to say, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and to release from darkness for the prisoners. Do you see what Jesus left out? Jesus left out the prophecy about freedom for the captives and release of the prisoners while John was in prison. Can you imagine how that might have stung? Because in Jesus' response, he says, yes, I am the Messiah, but no, I am not going to free you from this prison. Jesus is both simultaneously saying yes and no. And I promise, Jesus often does the same thing in our own life as well. He'll say yes, but no. Has this ever happened to you? Has God ever responded to one of your prayers with a different answer than you were hoping for? I have the privilege of working with our story prayer and care team, and that means I get to pray with tons of people here in this community. And I talk to a lot of people who are struggling when they hear a no from God. They say, if God is the God of the impossible, why can't we have a child? If our God is all powerful and can perform miracles, why can't he hear my husband of cancer? And when I pray with these people, I ask them like, how can I specifically pray for you? And people usually give me very specific requests, like pray for strength, pray for wisdom for the doctors, pray for a miracle for my child which are all great prayer requests, which are all very biblical. But one text message I had with someone this past Christmas break really spoke to me. And it was one of those prayer requests that actually ended up encouraging me probably more than I encouraged them. And it was a message I was having with a woman and her husband um, had a very tough cancer diagnosis. And it didn't seem like there were many ways forward or many ways of healing. And this is what she texted me. I asked her, 
Um, is there a specific way that we would like to pray for you this week? And she responded, I would like to pray for a miracle, of course, but whatever, whatever God hands us, that we have hope and that my husband stays strong. Thank you. And she goes on to say at the bottom, his ways are higher than our ways. We are trusting him. She said, I would like to pray for a miracle, of course, but whatever God hands us, that we have hope and stay strong. That is the prayer of someone who trusts God fully, who is obedient even when God says no or doesn't reply how we'd like him to. And in this text thread and in this conversation between John and Jesus that we've read today, I think we see the hard truth that sometimes God's plans won't be exactly what we want to hear. Sometimes God will have things for us that are hard, that are difficult, that are challenging to us because God has a greater purpose than we could ever imagine on our own. But listen, this doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't care. This doesn't mean that Jesus is absent. This doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't want to comfort you. That is the whole point of the incarnation. That is why Jesus came down to earth. Jesus came down here because he loves you so much. He didn't want to stay distant from your pain and suffering. He didn't want to stay far away from you, but he wanted to be with you. He wanted to save you. And it's by Jesus's blood, by his blood that was shed, that we are saved. Jesus wants to comfort you. He wants to grieve with you and grieve for you. And we see this clearly in Matthew 14, when Jesus finds out that John had been killed. When Jesus finds out that John was killed in prison, Jesus immediately retreats by himself and mourns in a desolate place. The crazy part about Jesus' reaction is he could have saved John's life. Jesus could have saved John's life. He was all powerful. He had the power to do it, but he didn't. But even though Jesus didn't save John, he still grieved the very death that he allowed in order to accomplish his greater purpose. Even when God tells you no, he is grieving with and for you, and he wants to comfort you. So we've heard John's question. We've seen Jesus' response of yes and no, and now we have the challenge. Because Jesus always comforts us first, but he loves us too much that he doesn't stop at comfort. He always brings a challenge as well. So let's check out Luke chapter 7, verse 23. Jesus ends this whole passage and ends his response to John by saying, Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. What does this mean? I, I had to read it like 20 times because it kind of feels like a riddle. But when I looked at the Greek, it kind of helped me because this phrase, do not stumble, can be translated as scandalized or offended. So what Jesus' challenge is to John and for us is, blessed is anyone who is not offended by me. Blessed is anyone who is not offended by Jesus. And we live in a world, y'all, where everyone is so easily offended. Like you see it all over the news everywhere. And 
us as Christians, I hate to say it, we're not immune to be offended either. Like I see Christians getting offended all the time. We'll be like an SNL skit that critiques Christians. And we're like, cancel Saturday Night Live, burn them down. We don't like being offended. But Jesus isn't talking about blessed is those who are not offended by the world. Jesus says, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So how is Jesus offensive? Because we don't usually think of Jesus being offensive, right? We think of Jesus being all love and hugs, but Jesus in the gospel can actually be very offensive, right? I mean, there's a ton of specific teachings we can nail on, but what I think the general idea is, the general way we're offended by God is that the gospel says that you are not the hero of this story. The gospel says that you are broken and you need a redeemer. The gospel says you need healing and you can't fix yourself. And in a world as self-centered as ours, that is an offensive claim that we need to rely on someone else. But because of our self-centeredness and because of our stubbornness, we always like to build God in our own image and expect him to act the way we act or like the things we like. And the challenge Jesus is giving us is don't be offended when Jesus is different than you expect him to be. So how do you handle your unmet expectations with God? What do you do when God slams a door that you thought he had opened for you? What do you do when God never delivers that husband or wife that you felt like you had been promised? What do you do when a loved one has died after months of faithful praying? I have found in my own life that when God's perfect plan doesn't match Dylan's perfect plan, I get offended, right? I'm not the problem. God is the problem. When, when my expectations for my family and when my expectations for my career don't match God's expectations, I say, that's on you, God. I held up my end of the bargain. It's time for you to come through for me. When God doesn't answer my prayers, my prayers aren't the problem. God's lack of responses. When, when I don't feel God because of the sin in my own life, the problem's not my own sin. The problem is God has abandoned me. But do you see what I'm doing there? It's selfish. I'm making myself the center of the universe when it's truly not me. It's God. So maybe when God doesn't meet my expectations, it's not God who needs to change. Maybe it starts with me. Maybe I need to change. But that would mean me admitting that God's ways are better than mine. That would mean me admitting that I'm not going to understand everything this side of heaven. And y'all, for me, that's a really difficult thing to admit because I like having the answers. My coworkers here at the church call me Curious George because I'm always asking questions. Someone will get off a phone call, be like, who are you talking to? They'll be in a meeting. I'm like, oh, am I supposed to be in this meeting? Oh yeah, I'm, I'm here, okay. And I just wanna be in on everything because I wanna know the context. I wanna know what's going on and that applies to God as well. I don't like it when God is making moves that I don't fully understand or can't comprehend. But I've had to come to the realization over the past year that I'm not gonna understand everything God does. And that's okay. It's really okay. And it sounds elementary, 
that's so hard for me to admit. I remember back in college, I was at a worship night and we were singing the song, Good, Good Father, which I'm sure some of y'all are familiar with. And this was a time in my life where I was kind of jaded, kind of questioning. And there was a line talking about your good, good father. It's who you are. It's who you are. You are perfect in all your ways. And I'm sitting there listening to this song being like, no, you're not good all the time, God. You do bad things. I know good better than you. But what I was doing in that moment is I was trying to define goodness when really only God can define goodness. And this is a hard truth. It's something that's been really hard for me to kind of internalize. And it sounds like a downer, but I promise it's not. Because in giving up control and saying, I'm not going to understand everything, you can find joy. Because the tragedy of our flawed expectations is, is it interferes with our ability to enjoy God's presence. But if we allow God to shatter our expectations, we will see what it truly means to be good. So how should you handle your unmet expectations with God? I think John the Baptist gives us a pretty helpful formula here in this passage. He says to ask questions, listen to God's response, and accept his challenge. I constantly maneuver this rhythm in my life. I ask questions, listen to God's response, and accept his challenge. By asking questions, I mean giving God all your doubts, giving God all of your disappointments. Anytime you have questions, bring them straight to God. Keep an open line of communication. Jesus didn't lash out at John, and he's not going to lash out at you either. Secondly, after you ask your question, you have to listen. And this is the part some of us don't like, the listening part. But we have to be willing to listen to God. You have to be willing to let God change your mind. You have to be open to the fact that you could be wrong about something and let God change it. And once you've listened, you have to accept. You have to accept Jesus for who he is and let the gospel shape the rest of your life. Because the gospel always does two things. It comforts and it challenges us. And there's two different type of people in this room this morning. Some of y'all who need to be challenged and some of you who need to be comforted. First off, those who need to be challenged, um, that's probably the people who've been in church for a while. I want to remind you that the gospel is offensive. But before you can ever use the gospel to offend someone else, it first has to offend you. It has to challenge you, convict you, and only then can you point others to Christ. Because if you're following Jesus for long enough, he will challenge you. He will challenge some of your habits. He will challenge some of your convictions, maybe the way you spend your money or spend your time. But Jesus will challenge you. Will you accept the challenge no matter the cost? Because John did, and I know he didn't regret it. And the second group in this room, those who need to be comforted, Jesus's words for you this morning are, I am the one. You can stop searching for other gods. You can stop trying to save yourself. I am the one you have been looking for. I am the Messiah, and I have come to bring the good news. 
Jesus is the one you have been searching for, and he wants to comfort you. He wants to heal you and make you whole. So whatever questions, whatever doubts, whatever disappointments you have, Jesus can handle it. Jesus will exceed every expectation that you have for him. It'll be different than he drew it up, but I promise Jesus is better. Would you pray with me? Father God, I thank you for just the privilege of reading your scripture, of being encouraged by your word, which is holy and true. God, I pray that we let scripture guide our lives. I pray that this word gospel would both comfort and challenge us. For those who need to be challenged this morning, God, I pray that your Holy Spirit convicts them and shows them the areas in which they need to align with you. And for those, Lord, who feel like they're in a prison, for those who feel like they're like John the Baptist and on death row waiting for their last, I pray that you just give them comfort. I pray that you hold them, that you heal them, that you grieve for them, and that you make them whole. In Jesus' name, amen.